38, verses 31 to 47. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent, sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will, I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Well, good morning, everyone. Come on, people. It's great to be in church together. Um, listen, I'm going to pray that we uh, rev up and uh, pump up, as Graham Barry would say, and enjoy being the people of God together as we read his scriptures. While I'm doing that, if you could get your Bibles open or keep them open at John chapter 5, that would be super helpful. Let's pray and then we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your son. Thank you that you have testified to him in the scriptures. We're going to be thinking about that today. Help us to listen to them, that we might know him and increasingly live for him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, going out for lunch or dinner these days is expensive, isn't it? And it's a bit of a treat for most of us, uh, which means you really want to have a good experience. You, you don't want to have a dud evening. So, of course, the question is, how do you make sure that you have a good time? How do you make sure the place you're planning on going to is any good? Now, fortunately, these days, it's easier than ever. Uh, you don't just have to go with the old word-of-mouth trick. Oh, we went to this place with, for mum's birthday, and it was excellent. There's kind of review websites all over the place, aren't there? Um, so if you end up going to a really dud place, it's kind of your own fault. You've got no excuse. Now, traditionally, high-end restaurants, they would uh, be reviewed by professional critics. And I just think that would be the best job ever. Don't you? Fantastic. How do you get that work? But of course, if you get slammed by a professional critic, it's going to be very hard for your restaurant to recover. So I thought I'd collect some of the scathing reviews from America's top foodie magazine called Eater. Let's see how we go. The main of pigeon was requested medium, but served so pink it just might fly again, given a few volts. If I work hard, with luck, one day I may be able to forget it. 
Don't know what could have saved these limp, dispiriting dumplings, but it definitely was in a lukewarm mushroom broth as murky and appealing as bong water. Also, uh, <laughs> I don't know what that is. Also, on the subject of dumplings, the uh, dumpling skids were so thick and glutinous that eating them was like biting into semi coagulated library paste. Here's my personal favourite the risotto with scallops is where hope goes to die. You're not going to go to those restaurants, are you? And why is that? Well, it's because we're actually relying on the testimony of people who know what they're on about. Uh, the restaurant, of course, can make all sorts of claims about itself. Here are the best dumplings in New York City, but the testimony suggests otherwise. Now, today we're thinking about the testimony, or about testimony, and especially what testimony backs up some of the outrageous claims that Jesus makes about himself. Uh, from John 5, we're thinking about what testimony will do. Allow me to bring you up to speed. In John 5, it's really a single unit. We've had to split it up into three parts for ease of digestion. In the first section, we, we heard about the miracle itself, where Jesus healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. You remember what he said? Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Uh, even though the man beforehand exhibited little faith and virtually no gratitude afterwards. Uh, and in fact, because the miracle had taken place on the Sabbath, where the Jews were not permitted to work, it raised the ire of the Jewish religious authorities, and a confrontation broke out between them, who really wanted Jesus to die, to be killed, and Jesus, who inflamed the situation, instead of just saying, come on, guys, the dude can work, walk again. Don't be such a bunch of Debbie Downers. He made an extraordinary, outrageous claim that he was one with the Father in status and in purpose. He had the authority to give life, but also to bring judgment. Now, today in our third installment in John 5, Jesus anticipates their comeback. How can you possibly make such outrageous claims by pointing out various things that testify, that give testimony that Jesus is sent from God the Father, that he's equal with God in terms of his status, and he's united with him in terms of his purpose? In other words, today goes to the very heart of who Jesus is, what he came to do, so that we can have certainty about those things. So it's well worth listening to uh, carefully. Well, there are firstly many things that testify to Jesus. Many things back up his claims, not including his own testimony. And we actually see that in the opening verse. So read along with me, chapter 5, verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favour, and I know that his testimony about me is true. It's an odd way to start reading the passage as we do with a full uh, knowledge of who Jesus is and of what he ultimately did by living obediently and then dying sacrificially and then rising triumphantly. It seems like an odd way to start a defense. I can't testify about myself because it's not true. There is somebody else who testifies about me, but I'm not going to tell you his name. But really he's setting up uh, everything that follows of course what Jesus says about himself is true. He's not suggesting that it's factually incorrect. He's just saying that it's invalid in its kind of self-referencing singularity. In other words, it just doesn't cut the mustard to say it's true because I said so. And the other person he mentions in verse 32 is none other than God himself, but he just doesn't use the name of God because he was following his Jewish cultural tradition. Nonetheless, God is the person whom all the other remaining items of testimony hang off. 
But before we look at the other remaining items of testimony, it is worth thinking through how important true testimony was in that culture. Uh, It was embedded in the Ten Commandments, wasn't it? You remember the Ninth Commandment? You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You just can't make things up. Uh, You might recall this was one of the highly farcical things about Jesus' own trial before he was crucified. There were multiple witnesses and their testimony didn't match up. You might even know about this principle in Deuteronomy 19. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offence they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So you see that testimony was very important in that culture. Everything was to be established by the testimony of multiple witnesses. But you see, I think that actually remains true in our culture, doesn't it? We hate lies, don't we? We find it convincing when multiple people have the same story. And of course, I'm not just talking about restaurant reviews now. I'm sure you've been alarmed at the reports coming out of the United States about Hollywood figures like Harvey Weinstein and Woody Allen and others and how they harassed women for decades because they could get away with it or closer to home with the likes of Don Burke and Craig McLaughlin, where multiple brave women have come forward calling out repeated aberrant behaviour. Now, sure, these guys are entitled to due process, but when multiple people tell the same story, the defence these guys roll out rings hollow, doesn't it? These claims are entirely untrue, just disgruntled former employees. You think, man, there seems to be a lot of disgruntled former employees who are all saying the same thing. Multiple witnesses, numerous testimony, it's got power in our day, just as it had power back in their day. And under God, verse 32, the first witness that Jesus rolls out is actually John the Baptist, who was really the the last of the Old Testament prophets and a true giant of the faith. Have a look in verse 33. These very Jews sent to John. Uh, I actually didn't realise this until this week. Um, It it doesn't just mean they went to John. They sent a delegation in John chapter 1, a delegation of priests to the wilderness to check out whether John the Baptist was the real thing. And they enjoyed his ministry for a time. Uh, Jesus, he describes John the Baptist as a lamp that burned. In other words, John's ministry shone a light forward that pointed uh, forward from John towards Jesus himself. And isn't that exactly what John said in his ministry? I'm not the Messiah. He is coming. I'm unworthy to untie his sandals, but yeah, I am preparing the way for him. But the thing about a lamp is that it's temporary. It doesn't shine forever. And if you look closely, you see that Jesus refers to John the Baptist in the past tense. John was a lamp that burned. It appears that John is already dead or at the very least, imprisoned. And that is one of the problems with human testimony, isn't it? We just don't live all that long. But by referencing John the Baptist, Jesus is really valuing the role that all Christian, every Christian person can have in testifying to him. He'll go on to say that there's, there's testimony far weightier than John the Baptist, and John the Baptist's witness is far brighter than any of ours, but there is a, a prominent place remains, doesn't it? for word of mouth, as we ourselves testify to all the difference Jesus has made in our lives, to our neighbours and our friends 
and our colleagues and our family members. And you can see there in verse 34, Jesus specifically connects human testimony, our words, to the salvation of others. So that's John the Baptist. Not a bad start at all, hey? One of the true giants of the faith. But when he moves to verse 36, he says the works the Father has given him to do also testify that he is from God. And you see their works is in the plural, things God has given him to do. So that includes miracles such as the healing at the very beginning of chapter 5. Although you will remember John calls them signs rather than miracles because they're meant to point beyond themselves to Jesus and to the kind of new age that Jesus is bringing in. So the works include the signs such as the healing we've been considering, but works is a broad idea. And you can see from verse 36, he talks about finishing the works. So even here, very early on in John's gospel, he's making a reference to his own obedient life unto the point of his death and his resurrection. The works God has given him will not be finished until he dies and he rises again. Which means, friends, that if you think Jesus was just a prophet or just a wise sage or just a compassionate miracle worker but not a sacrificial saviour, and a king over death itself, respectfully, you have an inadequate view of Jesus himself. The works God gave him included a perfectly obedient life, a sacrificial death, and a triumphant resurrection. And he finishes them all. And they all testify that Jesus is from God in terms of his origin. He is with God, equal with God in terms of his status. And he is for God in terms of his purpose. Quite incredible testimony. And so uh, as we move on to verse 37, it actually seems quite a logical next step to say that the father who sent him has testified concerning him. Uh, Some people think this verse is talking about Jesus' baptism. Uh, You might remember where a voice calls out from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And maybe it is talking about that. Others think verse 37 refers to the verses that follow about the Old Testament scripture. You ask the question, how has God testified concerning his son? Well, throughout all the pages of the Old Testament, not just in those parts where there's a direct prophecy, you know, the sort of parts that um, we read at Christmas time from Isaiah about a child being born unto, uh, unto us, or those parts that we read out at Easter time from Isaiah about a suffering servant. No, I'm actually saying on every page, on every page where it anticipates and it yearns for, and it, it I don't know, it kind of makes our hearts ache for the coming of one like Jesus. I mean, for example, page three, right? Genesis three, when the first humans fall foul of God in their rebellion, our hearts ache for the coming of one, the coming of a true human made in the image of God who walks with God obediently. Friends, who do you think that could be? Or uh, maybe later when the chosen people of Israel, I mean, that's a lot of your Old Testament, and they were even called God's firstborn son. And when they rebel against God in the wilderness and then in the land, it makes us wish for the coming of a better firstborn son, a faithful Israelite who might do what the first Israelites failed to do, that is, be a light unto the world. 
Who do you think that might be? When we read the disastrous catalogue of Israel's judges and kings, we crave a king who might lead us in humble service and righteousness and truth and victory. Friends, who do you think that is? Or when we see the wickedness in the Old Testament of the nations that surrounded Israel, as well as the waywardness of Old Testament Israel herself, it ought to make us hunger for the coming of one who could bring hope and salvation and guidance to the whole world, even the islands at the bottom of the globe. And who could possibly bring all that to all those peoples? You see the scriptures by which Jesus is referring to the Old Testament because that's all he had at that time testify to him on every page and in many and various ways. And so friends, I want to say to you, there is abundant testimony about Jesus, even at this very early stage of John's gospel. Uh, Putting aside Jesus' own claims about himself, there is John the Baptist. There are his works, including his own death and resurrection. There is the Father himself. And there is the whole Old Testament, not to mention the completed New Testament that we have, which includes multiple eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, as well as detailed explanation of those events from those who were with him. Many, many things that testify that Jesus is sent from God, that he's equal with God, and that he's working for God. And that ought to give us great, great assurance. But as we move to our second point for the day, there are, though there are many things that testify to Jesus, there's one single thing that prevents belief. There are many things that point to him, but a singularly hard heart that refuses to accept him. I remember asking a, uh, a 15-year-old in one of my small groups I was running once, I said, how do you get a hard heart? He said, too much cholesterol. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good pickup from a young fella. But of course, by a hard heart, we're not talking about the organ, are we? We're talking about the deep attitudes of our spirit, a deep determination not to believe, a stubborn stubbornness, if you will. I mean, the thing about determination is that it can be good or bad, can't it? Uh, you think of someone like Winston Churchill, the um, British Prime Minister uh, at the time of World War II. I mean, he had a determination that his nation needed. Do you love that speech? I love his speech. And you start saying it and you want to do it in the accent. Anyway, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states, wonderful stuff, have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. (laughs) It's great, isn't it? Because you see, they needed his determination, didn't they, at that time? But then there's the determination of the little kid to not eat the dinner that's good for him or to want to run out onto the road when it's perilous, Uh, or to lie screaming in the supermarket aisle because mum or dad didn't put their favourite cereal in the trolley, 
And that's the sort of bad determination that the religious Jews have at this point. And you see there's a little series of contrasts that gives the game away. Have a look at verse 44. They love the praise or the glory that comes from one another, human praise, not interested in the praise that comes from God. Perhaps they, they praise each other for their great religious observances, but they don't observe God as in truly seek him. Or, or look again in verse 43. They will accept human teachers and preachers who come in their own name, perhaps teaching in the synagogues and the schools there, but not Jesus who comes in the name of the Father. Or even earlier, have a look at verse 39. They study the scriptures diligently, hoping that their religious knowledge will somehow grant them eternal life. When the one whom the scriptures is all about, the one who has the very authority to give life, stands before them and they refuse to accept him. Well, how sad that is and how remarkable as their diligence in studying the Old Testament was legendary and yet they missed the whole point of it, which meant they were in danger of missing out on eternal life because of their hard-heartedness, which was fueled by a love of human praise. Well, that will always be a roadblock to belief, won't it? And really, um, that, that little discussion about Moses in verses 45 to 47 is just another way of stating this. You see, Moses was kind of the custodian of the Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through to Deuteronomy, that the Jews loved to study. Some of the Jews of the day also believed that Moses kind of interceded on their behalf in heaven, spoke to God in their defense, just like Moses interceded on their behalf at Mount Sinai way back in the book of Exodus. But you see, if Moses is responsible for those first five books, the books they loved, then of course he wrote about Jesus, because that's what those books were about. Yet because they refused to believe Jesus, who was so manifestly testified in the Old Testament, Moses is not going to be speaking in their defense in heaven. He will accuse them, as if to say, what a waste of time. What a waste of your life. You read it but you couldn't see Jesus because you didn't want to because you were more concerned for human praise. Friends, the problem is not with the evidence. It's not dubious. There aren't many ways you could argue it. There is abundant testimony. There is ample evidence. And we have even more with a completed New Testament. We know enough to know that Jesus is from God in terms of his origin equal with God in terms of his status and united to God in terms of his purpose, uniquely authorised to give life and to bring judgment. And so the problem really is not with the evidence. The problem is with our proud human hearts. There's lots of witness. There's just a singular problem. Our hearts refuse to believe. Our quest for evidence and testimony is right. I mean, it's right according to God's standards. Everything must be established by multiple witnesses. And it's right according to the standards of our age. But our quest for testimony is more than adequately fulfilled. So the issue is not information. It's heart attitude. And I wonder if yours might need recalibration this morning. Can I talk to you about a specific way um, before talking in a more general way? Have a look at verse 39. Jesus says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. 
Well, we, we read that, I think, and make the opposite mistake to the Jews. They studied them diligently, yet refused to come to him. It seems to me that we don't study them diligently at all. And everything's so rushed, isn't it? With work and the kids and Netflix and Instagram, just don't have time to study the scriptures. And we feel sort of okay about that because the Jews study them diligently and missed out on Jesus. Have a look closely at verse 39. Did you notice the words of Jesus? These are the very scriptures that testify about me. It's our loss, friends, if we don't study them. For within them we meet the very person of Jesus. And there's not another Jesus than the Jesus of Scripture. Old and New Testaments combined in a single united witness to him. You can miss Jesus if you don't read him well. You can miss him if you don't read him at all. So let me encourage you to read and study them individually and in groups with a keen mind and a humble spirit so that you might also meet the person of Jesus. You know, when I first arrived here uh, three, three and a half years ago with those sort of fresh set of eyes, one of the things I found alarming is that we didn't even open our Bibles during the Bible reading. Uh, and, and many people who did, or those that did, kind of closed them at the end of the Bible reading. It's delightful to be able to say that I don't think it's like that anymore. And with a little bit of encouragement, um, you're so very compliant, you keep them open. You do have to keep them open, don't you? The words in there are the only things without fault in this whole place. So keep them open, friends. That is the specific thing. I want to finish more generally by asking all of us whether we need to recalibrate, realign our hearts. There is a wonderful offer of life, eternal life, on the table in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's uniquely authorised to offer life, just as he's authorised to bring judgement because he's sent from God, being both equal with God and united with God in purpose. And it is very possible to miss out on that offer of life or at least the full joy that accompanies that offer of life avoidably. Because the things that make people miss out on that are avoidable. You know, you don't actually have to sit there and go, I remain unconvinced. You don't have to do that. Because there's more than adequate testimony. There's so much information or evidence. And you don't need to sit there in your chair going, uh, I'm, you know, you, you wouldn't articulate like this, but being worried about human praise or a lack thereof because your friends or your family think you're a bit of a dill for following Jesus or even worse because your own ego feels somehow bruised or aggrieved because you're not getting the respect or the recognition you think you ought to be for all of your service, uh, even service in church. You know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the only praise or glory that matters is the praise or glory that comes from God. And when you know that, friends, you have the experience, uh, you have the, the opportunity to experience the great freedom that comes from Jesus and his offer of life. And you, you get the assurance that you have the very best thing, and I mean the very best thing you could ever have. And then you get a wonderful dose of joy to boot. So as we finish, friends, uh, information, evidence, testimony, whatever word you want to use, it is important. It's important to us, and it's important to God too, which is why he has given us so much that points to his son and the life that he offers. 
I want to say, let us not miss out on it or the joy that accompanies it because we've got hard hearts that need to be recalibrated. Let's finish by praying. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for all the things that testify that he was from you, that he's equal with you, and he was united to you in terms of his purpose. We recognise that there's not a problem of information or evidence. The problem is with us and our hard hearts. So give us soft hearts to listen to the words of Jesus and to believe that we might experience life and the full joy of knowing him. And we pray this for his sake and in his name. Amen.